If you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew chapter 9. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. One of our ushers will come around and make sure that's our gift, a Bible. And if you need to take that Bible home with you, feel free to do that. That's our gift uh, to you as well. We started a, a significant conversation last Sunday in Matthew chapter 9 about who we are as a church. This is sort of part two of that today. And we begin in verse 18 where we read this, while he was saying this. Okay, here we begin in, in Matthew 9, verse 18, with this connector from what has come before, the first 17 verses and three scenes of Matthew chapter 9 and the things that are going to happen next. We, this is so important for us as a church. We saw last week just how, how rich these interactions that Jesus has with all kinds of different people are, how important they are to our ecclesiology. This is our fancy uh, theological word of the day, all right, our ecclesiology. All this word means is how we think about the purpose, the role of our church as a community. We saw last Sunday Jesus offers us a new way of dealing with sin, mercy, not sacrifice, grace, not performance. And this new way of dealing with sin opens up the community, the kingdom of right relationships, as we've been calling it is open to all sorts of people. And Jesus lives this out, embodies this for us by eating and partying and hanging out with many notorious sinners. We sing a, a song here from time to time called Come As You Are. I always get really excited because I'm like, oh, we're doing a Nirvana song. <laughs> and then it, it never turns out to be that song, but it's still a really great song. If you're familiar with it, it has some lines in it that are, that are just wonderful. Hope for the hopeless, rest for the weary, rescue for the brokenhearted. And these are the kinds of images that, that point to what Jesus is doing in these interactions he's having with people in Matthew chapter 9. This is the kind of community, the kind of church that we deeply desire to be. Church for the rest of us. Church for those who need rest and hope and grace and mercy. Church for those who feel like, oh, I don't fit in. I don't measure up. This is what Jesus is calling us into, what he is, again, embodying, exemplifying for us. And he's talking about this as fresh wine, new wineskins. Again, a whole new way of thinking about what God's kingdom is going to look like. As he's talking about this, this is where we begin today, as he was saying these things. I'll just pause here for a moment. I want to um, bring up a point that I think is going to be important for us to sort of have in the back of our mind as we make our way through this text today, okay? My kids have a book called It's Not Fair, and, and I've heard some people say that this is one of the most important lessons you can teach your children. I don't know that I agree with that, but there is this sense of, of as you grow up, discovering that, oh, wow, life is not fair. And so what this book does is it looks at a series of uh, situations that might happen in the life of a child that they would consider to be unfair. And it's sort of cute and it's rhymy. And at the end of each stanza, there's this opportunity for catharsis of just yelling out, it's not fair. My kids love it. We get into it. It's a good time. But what's interesting about this is, is that fairness is a deeply held value, I think, especially in Western culture. We, we sort of cling to this myth of a level playing field of, of things should be or, or could be fair. And yet, at the same time, and in sort of a contradictory way, we also want to be unique. 
And we want to be treated as unique individuals. We don't want to be mass-produced. We don't want to be a part of uh, some sort of generic process or a number on a spreadsheet. Are you with me? Now, one of the truths that we have encountered in Matthew to this point is the radical equality in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven. We are equal. We are equal because each of us has a desperate need for grace and mercy, and none of us uh, on our own doing, on our own good behavior, can earn God's approval or affirmation. And so from that perspective, yes, there is definitely a level playing field. And yet the thing that I want us to hold on to as we move our way through the rest of Matthew chapter 9 this morning is this. Jesus does not interact with everyone in the exact same way. To some people, he is very gentle and accepting. To others, he can be quite harsh and exacting. And this can can mess with us a little bit. This can mess with our sense of fairness. There are no formulas in the kingdom of God. It's not always fair. It is good and it is just and it is right, but there are no formulas in the kingdom of God. Our equality comes uh, not through Jesus treating every single person exactly the same way. It comes from our desperate need for a savior. Our desperation drives us to Jesus and restores us to community. Let me say that one more time. Our desperation drives us to Jesus and restores us to community. So verse 18 of Matthew chapter 9. Here we go. Let's get into this scene a little bit. While he was saying this, the synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. So here here we are in the midst of of just a lot of different things are, are happening around Jesus. Life is coming at him very fast here. He's gone from a party. Uh, from, from hanging out with all these tax collectors and sinners to getting pushed back from the Pharisees, being questioned by John's disciples. Now this request to raise a dead girl back to life and then this mysterious woman bumps into him. I want us to slow down here for just a moment and sit with these two characters that we're introduced to here in these last couple of verses. Let's begin with this high-profile man, this synagogue leader. He's a part of the religious system in a position of power, a position of authority. He's an insider in the community. He's the definition of a clean, upright, upstanding citizen in, uh, in Galilee at that point in time. So hold him in contrast then with this lower profile woman whose persistent bleeding would have relegated her to the status of an unclean community Outsider. These are two very different people. And their approach, their, their interaction with Jesus is also very different. The man is direct. He comes right up to him, right to the point. Come, heal my daughter. Clearly willing to do anything to save his girl. The woman, far more subtle and stealthy, right? Just, just trying to get a, a, a piece of his cloak, just a touch of his cloak is all that she's looking for. 
So in so many ways, polar opposite characters, male, female, powerful, powerless, and yet both united in their desperate need for Jesus to help them. And they demonstrate this in a number of different ways. One of them is that they both take great risks in coming to Jesus. The synagogue leader is risking his position within his community by going and seeking the help of this rogue rabbi. I'd imagine some of his friends being like, you went to that guy? Come on, man. This woman, this woman is taking a risk knowing that Jesus, if he figures out, uh, discovers that she touched him, would have every right to bring significant repercussions down on her for, for her making him unclean, transferring her uncleanness onto him. So they're connected by, by the ways that they take risks. They're also connected in the ways that they demonstrate what I would call humble reverence. This man is direct, but this is not a big show. He kneels before Jesus. He asks this question, please come, save my daughter. She's dead. This is a, a huge ask. This is humility born from a sense of desperation. And then for this woman to be bleeding for 12 years, this is a, a long, horrible experience. This bleeding most likely refers to menstruation. Her un uncleanness means that she's unable to be married. This puts her in a precarious economic situation. Other gospels tell us that she had been seeking help for this entire time, could never find it, had been to many doctors, kept getting worse, never, never gets better. And again, estranged from her community, unable to go to worship, unable to participate in the life of the community, she is as good as dead. And she demonstrates humble reverence in the way that she approaches Jesus, right? If I could just touch his cloak, that's all it takes. She has great faith, right? So both are also seeking the impossible. They're looking for resurrection, and they go for it. Their desperation drives them to Jesus. Now look at how Jesus interacts with this woman. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. Jesus sees her. I want us to sit with this for just a moment. And this huge crowd of people on, on his way to do a, a really important, significant thing, Jesus turns and he sees her. In his hurry to save a daughter, he sees another daughter. Imagine that moment for her to be noticed and, and not to be uh, condemned or talked down to. To be seen by Jesus. He turns, he pauses, he interrupts what he's doing. He speaks truth to her. Take heart, take courage, don't be afraid. He calls her daughter, a term of, en of endearment, familial intimacy. The scene is not about trying to figure out what just happened. It is about noticing. It is about affirming. And it is very important that we note this happens before the healing. 
He does say your faith has healed you. And this healing, though, not just about stopping the bleeding. Certainly it is about that. But Jesus, in this very public setting, wants everyone to know she's clean. And what that means is she's, she can participate again. She's included in this community. This is a resurrection moment. This is moving from death to life. This is a gospel. This is a good news story. I think there are a couple important things here for us to, to notice. If we want to be a church for the rest of us, we need to see people. We cannot just wait for people to show up. We need to notice and give courage and let people know you are welcome here. You are a son. You are a daughter. Father Greg Boyle says kinship is what happens when we remember that we belong to each other. Kinship is what happens when we remember that we belong to each other. Kinship, the kingdom of right relationships, a resurrection community is what Jesus is building and it's who we want to be. It's who we are called to be as a church. Now the father in this story continues to show humble reverence by not throwing a fit about this interruption. I think this is a significant thing that can be easy to miss. He does not get frustrated with Jesus for pausing and, and taking this moment to affirm and heal and include this woman. Eventually, though, they do get to his house where we read this. Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house, saw a noisy crowd and people playing pipes, and he said, go away. The girl is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. Now here's where we begin to see Jesus treating people a little bit differently. So responsive to the request of the synagogue leader. So tender with this woman. But now, go away. Jesus has no problem telling people who are impeding his mission to get out of the way. Now, it's important to, to notice these people aren't doing anything uh, wrong here. They're not doing anything immoral. They're doing the right thing under the circumstances. They're mourning in all of the traditional and correct ways a terrible tragedy, the death of a young girl. But Jesus is not here for it. This is a resurrection that is about to happen. And, and his attitude is if you're going to laugh about it, you can go. This should remind us of some of the things that we saw last week. The bridegroom is here. This is not a time for mourning. This is a time for celebration. Resurrection. Now, quick aside and important aside that I want to make here. We need to make space within our community for lament. A lot of damage is done in church pushing people to put on a happy face when, you know, everything is not going great. Caitlin Curtis is a brilliant Native American writer. She published an article, I think just about a week ago, called Grief Hides in the Church Bathroom, which tells you everything you need to know. Grief hides in the church bathroom. And this article is a great challenge to us, to create space for people to bring their hurt and their lament into church with them. Jesus here is not contradicting this need, but we do need to remember that his mission is resurrection. 
bringing life from death, and where there is resurrection, there is celebration. So yes, we need to create space for lament, but we also, I think, need to ask some questions. What have we called dead that might actually just be asleep? Where do we need the eyes of Jesus to see what is a resurrection about to happen here? And maybe the, the hardest question is where do we need to just get out of the way so that Jesus can do what he needs to do? Jesus touches this girl, raises her from the dead, and the news of this begins to spread. Now, the very next scene continues this pattern of Jesus interacting in different ways with people. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they replied, Yes, Lord. So here are two blind men. Jesus is walking past. They call out to him, but it appears that Jesus ignores them at first. They have to get up. They have to follow him to where he's going, go inside of the building, and then that's where he finally gives them his attention. Now, one issue here may be the title that they have used. They call Jesus Son of David, and Jesus certainly is a son of David. He quite literally is a son of David. Matthew went out of his way to show us that back in, in, in chapter 1. But this phrase or this term, son of David, was often uh, used uh, sort of a generic term of honor given to a Jewish man, kind of like saying good sir or whatever we might say in our, uh, in our context. Jesus very recently has started using the phrase son of man to describe himself. And this was a term full of, uh, of power and authority, this image of a Messiah who was to come. This is a, a very specific, audacious title to give himself. I wonder if Jesus is sensing a little bit of insincerity in these guys. They want to be healed, but they're missing that humble reverence of some of the earlier characters that we saw just a few verses ago. So he questions their faith. Do you believe I can actually do this? And here they do respond, I think, with a bit more reverence. Yes, Lord. And look at what happens next. Jesus touches them. Hold this in contrast with that woman. In her desperation, she reaches out and touches Jesus. Jesus touches them, and he heals them. And then Jesus gives them a big hug and sends them on their way, right? No. Jesus warns them sternly, don't tell anybody about this. See that no one knows about this. Now, why would he do this? We just heard that the news about him is spreading. He's raised a girl from death to life. All publicity is good publicity, right? Jesus doesn't want them to tell anyone. And again, not a suggestion. This is a stern warning. See that no one knows about this. Jesus does not treat everybody the same, does not interact with everybody in the same way. And I wonder if Jesus here senses these men need some of that stealthy spirituality he taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. Some holy anonymity. To contrast these guys with the woman one more time, she needed Jesus' touch to be healed, but she also needed 
him to notice her, to be affirmed, to be welcomed back into the community, to experience that kinship. These guys have used flattery, maybe even a bit of insincerity to get what they want. And in order for them to experience that same sort of holistic healing, I think they need a dose of anonymity, stepping back, that humble reverence. Sometimes we need to be seen and sometimes we need to get out of the way. Here's how this uh, scene wraps up. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. Jesus giving a voice to the voiceless. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. So Jesus continues to heal. The, the crowds continue to grow. They say, we've never seen anything like this before. This is amazing. This is unbelievable. The Pharisees are now in a full-on conspiracy theory Twitter mode, right? He's, he's Satan. A very deep split in perception that's going to continue to grow over the next several chapters as we make our way through Matthew. Jesus heals those who need to be healed. He gives sight to the blind, voice to the voiceless. He sees the unseen, the desperate are made well and invited in. And he tells those who would get in his way to get out of the way. He gives strong warnings to those who have mixed motivations. There's no checklist or procedure that he works his way through. There are no formulas in the kingdom of heaven. As we go about sharing the good news of Jesus with people, we need to remember this. We must reject easy formulas. There isn't a four-step process or some magical incantation or even a prayer that does the trick every single time. Jesus, in his authority and wisdom, gives people what they most desperately need. And for some, that is grace and acceptance, and for others that can be truth and even a hard word. All of it, though, to build community, to create kinship, to give people mission and purpose, to restore our voice, to give us a story to tell. One of my favorite stories of Someone discovering their voice <clears throat> comes again from um, Father Greg Boyle, who I mentioned earlier. If you don't know him, you should get to know him. He's done some amazing work in Los Angeles with, uh, uh, with gang members, um, young men and women who are coming out of uh, the gang life. And, and over time, this has really developed into quite the operation. It's called Homeboy Industries now. He's written a couple of books. I would highly recommend the book Tattoos on the Heart if you want an inspiring read that will make you laugh and cry all at the same time. Such a great storyteller. One of, one of my favorite stories that he tells is this. Laura Bush, when she was the first lady, visited Homeboy Industries and was really impressed with the work that they were doing. So she called him up a, a short while later and invited Father Boyle to speak at the White House. And this is maybe my favorite part of the whole story. She calls him up, extends the invitation, and then says, can you bring three homies with you? And I don't, there's something about Laura Bush saying, can you bring three homies with you? That brings me a certain amount of joy. 
So he writes, I pick Alex, Charlie, and Felipe. I suppose if you had asked Central Casting to select three homies, they might have chosen these guys. They are large, tattooed, all had done time. Alex is thickly built. He's in his mid-twenties, a handsome guy with tattoos stretching across his neck. The tacks on his chin and forehead have grown faint. He's gone, undergone 37 laser treatments to remove gang tattoos. He needs, oh, about 96 more. He's a simple guy, never did well in school. At a Dodgers game once, after singing the Star-Spangled Banner with his hand over his heart, Alex confides, you know, I couldn't tell my right hand from my left if it weren't for the Pledge of Allegiance. Alex's job at Homeboy is to help supervise our part-time workers, but mostly, though, he gives tours. Reluctant to do so at first, Alex has come to inhabit this role with a certain degree of delight in his own particular brand of panache. He'll greet you at the front door, introduce you to the job developers, explain our release program, hand you a pair of goggles so that you can watch tattoos being removed. He gives a great tour. Blessed are the single-hearted. Jesus meant Alex. Few hearts come as true and pure as Alex's. Father Boyle then, then talks about how he takes these guys to the men's warehouse and he buys them all suits. And Alex in particular is quite pleased, beaming at himself as he sees himself in a suit for the first time. Then the moment comes, they fly to Washington, D.C., and Father Boyle writes, on Thursday, the day the homies sport their suits for the conference and the White House dinner, we discover that Alex has lost his pants. We know this because Alex is running around my brother's house yelling, I got no pants. As best we could piece together, Alex must have lost them in the hurry to get to my car the morning we left. There's now a homeless guy in East L.A. who likes the way he looks. I guarantee it. We get Alex a new pair of pants, thanks to my brother, and we're good to go. At the White House, butlers walk the halls carrying long-stemmed glasses of white wine, which the homies snatch up with haste. Every room, the blue room, the green room, all those different colored rooms, seems to have either a, a, a band or a musician or some amazing food in it. The gold room holds the buffet. Never in my life have I seen or tasted more exquisite food. I go back three times. Rack of lamb, perfection. A salmon the size of a duffel bag. Pastas and salads. They even have these small white potatoes cut lengthwise with a hole carefully bored and filled with caviar garnished with a sprig of chive. I'm standing with Alex as he pops one of those suckers in his mouth. Almost as quickly and with his discretion valve turned off, he spits the potato mess into a napkin and says, this blank tastes nasty. <laughs> the next day we head home. And somewhere over Nebraska, Alex says he needs to go to the restroom. So I point him to the back of the plane. 45 minutes later, Alex returns to his seat. Did you fall in, I ask him. Oh, Alex says with his signature innocence, I was just talking to that lady over there. I turn and I see a lone flight attendant standing in the back. Alex winces a bit. I made her cry. I hope that's okay. Well, Alex, I braced myself. It might depend on what you actually said to her. <laughs> well, 
Alex begins. She saw my homeboy industry shirt. She saw my tattoos. And she started asking me a grip of questions. So, and he pauses here with a whiff of embarrassment. So I gave her a tour of the office. At 34,000 feet, somewhere over Nebraska, Alex walks this woman through our office. He introduces her to our job developers, explains our release program, hands her a pair of goggles so that she can see tattoos being removed. I told her that last night we made history, he says with brimming excitement. For the first time in the history of this country, three gang members walked into the White House. We had dinner there. I told her the food tasted nasty. <laughs> he pauses and gets still. And she cried. I get still myself. Well, Miho, what'd you expect? She caught a glimpse of you. She saw you. She recognized you as the shape of God's heart. And sometimes people cry when they see that. He concludes by saying, suddenly, kinship, two souls feeling their worth, a flight attendant and a gang member, 34,000 feet, no daylight separating them, exactly what God had in mind. What is it that unites a synagogue leader, and a bleeding woman? What is it that creates kinship between a gang member and a flight attendant? What is it that binds us together in this kingdom of right relationships? It is our desperation for Jesus. It is our recognition that we need resurrection, that we are dead. We need to be brought back to life. Very simply, it is Jesus, kinship, community, grace, church for the rest of us, only because of and only through Jesus. So a couple of questions for us. Have you recognized your desperate need? Have you recognized that you are dead and that you need to be raised back to life? Have you allowed Jesus to heal you? to raise you from the dead, to bring you into his kingdom so that you can enjoy the kinship that we have through him. And then, has that resurrection led you to share your story? Have you started to give tours of what God is doing in your life? Pray with me. Father, as we read these stories, it, Jesus is just so compelling. The, the people that he chooses to be with, the risks that he takes, the, the ways that he pauses and sees people who have been unseen and overlooked, who have been forgotten, the ways that he names them daughter. The, the miraculous healings, bringing the dead back to life, giving voice to the voiceless. God, we, this is just so incredible. The things that Jesus does and the power that he has. 
Father, if there are those here this morning who have never accepted this new way of dealing with the separation between us, this grace, this mercy, instead of sacrifice and performance, would you move in their heart to accept that now in this very moment? And then, Father, maybe we've already accepted that grace, but we have, there's parts of our life that feel dead and are desperately in need of resurrection. Would you give us hope? Would you restore our faith that you can still bring dead things back to life? And then finally, God, as a community, would we be a community that sees people, that gives voice to those who don't have a voice? Would we be a community that gives tours of what you are doing, the work that you've done in our life, so that other people can see and experience and know the good news of Jesus? Father, we need courage to do this. Would you give us the courage to do that? And again, may this church grow in its ability to love people, to be a church for those who desperately need good news. We pray all this in Jesus' name.